I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Jill Dawson. Jill Dawson's latest novel, The Crime Writer, transports readers to 1960s Suffolk, England, where the American novelist Patricia Highsmith is working, hiding from fans, her troubles, the press, and pesky biographers, and having an affair with a married woman who is based in London. Yet, Bridge Cottage doesn't form the impenetrable barrier to the demons Pat thinks she's left behind. Prowlers, imposters, sexual obsessives, a young and unrelenting journalist called Ginny, and even a cleverly secreted biographer all intrude on her Suffolk retreat. Rich with Jill Dawson's research and nods to the Highsmith canon, the crime writer masterfully reimagines the artful Patricia Highsmith as both subject and protagonist in exercised fantasies of murder and madness. The crime writer is available now as a paperback original from Harper Perennial. Today on the phone, we have with us Jill Dawson, author of The Crime Writer. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So The Crime Writer takes as its subject and protagonist Patricia Highsmith, who is someone who I've always thought was intriguing, uh, yet an unknowable person who often seems to skirt outside mainstream literary culture in spite of her mastery of psychological suspense. So why choose Patricia Highsmith for a subject and the protagonist of your latest novel? Yes, I often feel that the, um, the subject of my novel kind of chooses me in some way. And with Highsmith, I only really knew the novels like um, Strangers on a Train. I did realize that was her, and I knew the talented Mr. Ripley, but I hadn't read her other work. Mm-hmm. And some years back, I began reading her rather compulsively and in order. So reading all the novels, there are 22 in the order of publication, and realize what an addictive quality her work has. Mm-hmm. You read one, and, and you, you you really can't put them down. You want to read another. And it is it is very hard to put my finger on what that's about. And I think I began to feel rather addicted to her writing without necessarily admiring it um, wholly. I mean, she has a kind of a really plain quality, doesn't she? Someone once described her sentences as relentless as a dull headache. <laughs> and I think there's some truth in that, um, that there is a relentless quality. So I feel that I just got very intrigued by her, and I was sharing her books with my mum and my sister, and we were discussing them. And the sense of an author who can do that, who can provoke a lot of discussion, um, for me is quite an exciting one. It's a while since I've had that experience. So Highsmith herself and the novels were where I was starting from, and then I discovered that she lived here in England for a while, and, and it seemed to start um, <laughs> making sense of something that would interest me in particular. She moved to um, Suffolk, which is about an hour and a half from where I live. It's similar countryside. She moved to a very quiet place, a village called Earl Soham, which I can't kind of tell um, American listeners really how obscure that is. If you're going to come to England, it's a pretty odd place to be. <laughs> okay. It doesn't have much to recommend it. There are 
two pubs and it's a rural area. And she didn't have a friend. She had the friend Ronald Blythe, the writer, who was living down there in the 60s. But I think, again, that combination of her coming to such an odd place and imagining that she could be secretive there or incognito, it wasn't really going to happen in a village where um, a woman on her own would uh, incite a lot of interest, really. I mean, the two pubs would be enough for me. That would get me there, quite frankly. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, one of them still exists. Oh, does Victoria, it? And um, the other one closed down a few years back. And when I went to begin researching it, I immediately, at lunchtime, went and had a, a sort of look around this pub. And actually, I had exactly that sense that everyone was intrigued, you know, who was I, what was I doing? I wasn't going to be allowed to just be invisible. It, it's a small place. Um, where everyone knows everyone, and they're very intrigued by a stranger. Mm -hmm. So I did smile to myself, imagining Highsmith trying to have that experience in the 60s, and I don't think she would have been left alone. Besides reading the novels in the order in which they were published, and besides your reconnaissance mission via a pub lunch, which I totally support in all of its glory, what was your research process like for the crime writer? I mean, you, you, even, you even got Patricia Highsmith right down to her, her snails, which I... Oh, well for the snails, let's start there. Yeah, let's start there because I have a lot of questions about those snails. Okay, great. Both <laughs> of the biographers mentioned the snails. And so it's really true that she did once take um, a handbag with a lettuce head with snails attached to it to a party. That That is definitely true. Wow. Um, and I wonder if she took them because she wasn't sure how long she could leave them on their own. Okay. Because I tried an experiment when working on this novel. I got my daughter to go in the garden and just pick garden snails. We wouldn't read up on them. We wouldn't learn about them. We'd just observe them. And we put them in a big sort of Tupperware carton with some leaves and bits of grass. And lo and behold, they thrived, um, and they multiplied. They did begin mating quite quickly. Huh. And they do lay all these tiny little eggs, and before you know it, you have tons of them. At which point, we threw them back into the garden. <laughs> but I think it does make sense of the idea that how many Highsmiths quickly had. Right. It seems a little less eccentric then, you know, unless you do get rid of them, they will quickly multiply. Yeah. Yeah, because I, one of the things that I was that I was curious about when I was reading Crime Writer was, you know, were these were these snails a real thing, or was this something that you took you took a little bit of license with? Because it, it you capture sort of the process that you just described very well, and, and you know, is is it was it something that she was just a bit eccentric about, or was it you know an, an actual part of her her life and in one of the sort of the weird odd ways that she expressed care in a way. I think that's a wonderful um, explanation, an odd way that she expressed care. She did seem to have more empathy with creatures, mm -hmm. such as males, sometimes than she did with people. She found it hard to be around people. She did in her own um, writing write about snails and described them as experiencing a rapturous kiss. That's how she described their mating, which I think has all kinds of possible interpretations and sort of the idea of them experiencing rapture mm -hmm. is quite an odd one in itself. But I also wonder, one of the biographers hints or suggests that, you know, a kind of interpretation of Highsmith today might be someone with um, an autistic spectrum disorder, something like Asperger syndrome. And I feel that 
you know, actually, well, we don't need to pathologize her. I didn't need to go that far, but I quite, I mean, I know a lot. I have a son with Asperger's syndrome, and I quite like that interpretation, too, because it allowed me to feel compassion for her eccentricities more easily. They seemed not so much cruel, as some have said. I mean, one of her biographies begins, she wasn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's very damning and and. Not necessarily would be everyone's interpretation. I mean, one of the other, you asked me about my research, and one of the other people I spoke to was Ronald Blythe, who mm-hmm. knew Highsmith here in England, and who's now 93. And he said their friendship was tender and true, which is actually the last line of the novel. I mm-hmm. took that from him. Mm-hmm. And he spoke with great warmth of her. And in his version, she, she felt more, I suppose, like the one I've conjured up, which is certainly strange and with some very very dark thoughts and experiences Mm -hmm. but but I wouldn't say straightforwardly cruel or unlikable as some have presented her. While it may be a bit like asking you to name your favorite child which I totally will not do, do you have a favorite nod to Highsmith or one of her novels that you were able to work into the crime writer? The one which isn't necessarily my favorite, but I think it's worth mentioning, is The Storytellers. The Storyteller is published in England as A Suspension of Mercy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because it's set in Bridge Cottage, right where my novel is set mm-hmm. in Suffolk. And so it's the one I was reading very closely and thinking about Highsmith's kind of observations about English people and the English countryside. But if I'm just allowed to mention two, I do, of course, (laughs) love Carol. Yes. Life of Salt. Um, It was published out in 52. Mm -hmm. And I think that one's beautifully written in a a slightly more poetic way than her later novels. So if a reader was new to Highsmith, Mm -hmm. uh, they could do worse than start with those two. Those two. Not necessarily go chronologically. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm pretty compulsive. When I get hold of someone, I just... (laughs) I just read. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the one of the themes that emerges in the novel that surrounds Pat herself is balancing this need to be noticed and a desperation for seclusion. And that sort of comes across in her interactions, not just with the setting when she places herself in Bridge Cottage in the novel, but also with her interactions with Sam and also her interactions with Ginny a bit and her relationship with those two characters as, as the novel progresses. Why was this combination an important one to explore in creating her character? Well, it's one I've long been interested in. I think perhaps even before Highsmith, um, one of my novels, The Great Lover, has a quote about Rupert Brooke. Mm-hmm. Well, the quote is by Winnicott, not about Rupert Brooke, but I've made it be about him, if you like, by mm-hmm. including it. And it's, um, it's a joy to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. Okay. And I, I think the same thing could very much apply to Pat Highsmith, which is she certainly did seem to take a certain joy rather like her snails in retreating, you know, inside her shell, in hiding, in um, privacy, in having a secret lover and a secret love life. Um, But she seems to have expressed, I mean, she kept journals um, and wrote and had many, many love affairs and wrote a great deal about her inner feelings. So she also seemed to have expressed a huge desire to be seen and known and understood. And I think this conflict is at the core of her, but it's possibly also at the core of a great deal of creativity in many people's lives. 
And it's maybe where I find my um, connection with her because I would say that, you know, I like to write using what sounds like quite a confessional, intimate voice. Mm -hmm. That's a sort of deliberate choice of mine. But I write fiction. I, I know I often have a kind of mask or the ventriloquism of writing as if someone else. Right. <laughs> so there's that sort of pleasure in hiding or, or um, acting or wearing a mask. And I think I probably share that with her and I, I understood some of that. Yeah, it, it and it was really it's really striking too. One of the things um, when I when I read it, it was it was really striking how I sort of forgot that I, I forgot that I wasn't reading something by Patricia Highsmith. Um, so I really I really thought that the ventriloquism that you were trying to perform um, worked really for me. It worked really well as as a reader. I I almost I, I did forget where where I was and who who I was reading. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's a terrific compliment. And, I mean, I guess I get very lost. I have a sort of immersive technique when I'm writing. And so the reason for reading her over and over and then going to Bridge Cottage, and actually I did go to Fort Worth too, where she grew up, and a sort of immersion in her, a little bit like method acting, where you start mm -hmm. to feel that maybe you will be able to capture something of someone's unique voice or sensibility. And I, I love that process, and I always find um, that's, that's the part of the novel where I'm most enjoying it, really, when, it, when I feel sort of lost in it in that way. So if that translates to a reader, that's very pleasing. Well, it, did, it, did, it certainly did for me, I, I have to say. It really, really did. There's a debate on the categorization of crime versus suspense throughout the novel. And crime, and the idea of a crime writer, maybe wasn't a phrase that Highsmith herself wasn't keen on, or at least her character is not keen on it in the novel. So how do you draw the distinction between crime and suspense? Yeah, I think that actually it's true that she herself, so it's not just some characteristic I gave her, I think she didn't like the term crime writer. Um, but for a couple of reasons, I guess many people think of crime fiction as being detective fiction, you know, mm -hmm. where someone commits a crime at the beginning and someone else figures it out and by the end of the novel it's all been sort of resolved. And I think quite genuinely Highsmith didn't want people to have the wrong expectation of her work where that isn't what happens. Mm -hmm. Crime is very much the subject but usually as we know like Mr. Ripley, the talented Mr. Ripley novels, uh, the criminal usually gets away with it right. and there isn't much police involvement. So I think one was a genuine feeling that readers would have the wrong expectation. I think the second was a kind of anxiety that she wouldn't be taken seriously, that writers who make crime their subject, and she always, I mean, it was her favorite novel of all, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment mm -hmm. is about crime. Mm -hmm. um, but it's seen as, you know, a very serious literary existentialist novel. And I think actually that's the category Highsmith wanted to be considered within. So even suspense was um, a problematic genre for her. I mean, I think these days things have changed. Genres have shifted and we don't have such um, stark boundaries. And maybe we can be a bit more fluid about where a writer's position. But I do understand that for her, the label crime writer she felt irritated by. So I rather naughtily called the novel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then I think everything about my novel would probably have irritated her for sure. <laughs> so I've already transgressed, you know, even in writing it. And I just kind of, I suppose, wanted to make readers question a little what that term might mean and 
what their own expectations of a crime novel might be. Right, because I think it was Graham Greene who called Highsmith the poet of apprehension. Yes. And I have, I confess, I have not read much Highsmith. I've read The Talented Mr. Ripley, and I have read A Suspension of Mercy. It does seem like it's maybe not so much about the fact that a crime has taken place, but there is a lot of sort of that that space that happens between thinking of something that is a serious transgression and then actually going ahead and doing it. Yeah. That, that that see that middle ground seems to be the thing that that both she was interested in and, and also the character that you've created in the crime writer seems to be very caught up in that, that mental exercise. Yes, and actually she's been described as having a kind of palpable evil on the page and I think she does uniquely capture that and I was very interested in how. How did she make the reader feel genuinely quite anxious, the heart can be pounding, you feel sure that something bad is going to happen, which is the definition of a suspense novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, as has often been pointed out, kind of rooting for the hero, if it's, say, Tom Ripley, to get away with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wanted in The Crime Writer for readers to actually think incredibly hard about the kinds of criminal acts that are being committed. I don't want to give too much away yeah. for those who haven't read it. But also to what extent that would uh, we might want or hope for a protagonist to get away with it. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, because there's this, there's this sort of conflict between what is someone willing to do versus what someone is willing to think themselves capable of doing. Yes. Now, and I feel that tension, that little area, um, is one that interests me the most. I mean, very often in a novel, if someone does commit a murder or something happens that's implausible, that's the point where I would throw the novel down. You know, there's mm-hmm. a feeling like, oh, I don't think that character would do that. that. That's very disappointing to me. So trying to show a character who would do quite extreme things and carry the reader along and say, do you think they would? Do you think they're capable of it? Who is capable of these kind of acts? What would make someone able to be violent? Um, that's probably a theme that's continued in other novels of mine. You know, that that probably is in Lucky Bunny, um, which has, you know, criminal characters and is very much an exploration of that. So Highsmith herself for sure was interested in that, but so am I. And I think um, she was the perfect vehicle for me to explore that through. Right, yeah, that's, that's great. So we just have one more question for you. Yeah. Uh, and it's a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Since um, this is primarily geared at um, teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, well, I had an English teacher when I was 16 who I've been in touch with since called John Foggin, Mr. Foggin. <laughs> And um, he introduced me, age 16, to this nature writer, Ronald Blythe, who I mentioned and who I've put in the novel, the character of Ronnie. Ronnie, So I can honestly say that he introduced me to the kinds of books and writing I'm still reading today. And I felt very grateful to him and actually wrote to him as an adult, um, sort of in my 40s. And he admitted that he'd been having a very difficult time back then. He was a young teacher. Uh, and it was quite a radical school, and I hadn't really appreciated any of that. So he was particularly grateful to hear from me, so that was very, very <laughs> nice. So he was my, 
I don't know what the equivalent is. It's our first year of sixth form, age 16 in England. Um, that He was like, I suppose that's a high school teacher. Yeah, yeah, it would be about a high school teacher, yeah. 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 Well, that's fantastic. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to talk to you at last. It's great to talk to you. I know you a little from Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great to talk with you, too. Terrific. Thank you. That's so nice. I'm really glad to speak to you. That's lovely. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.